0: For for some of you, those those announcements felt like uh, tight parking. I can deal with that, but you move the coffee. I've been meaning to tell you that I'm searching for a new church. I'm kidding. I hope you're kidding. Uh, I hope the laughing doesn't mean that there's a tinge of truth to that. Um. If you, are, if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, maybe you're in the kind of the flow of back to school and uh, re-engaging after having been out for a chunk of the summer or you're searching for a place to come and worship. You're catching us in the middle of uh, a year-long run here where we're walking through uh, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We happen to be in the Gospels right now, and so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 if you have a Bible and you want to open up to there. Um, what we're looking at is the large storyline of Scripture. And so we read all the the narrative history in the Old Testament, which was Genesis up through Esther. We sprinkled in some Psalms. We sprinkled in um, some brief passages uh, out of some of the prophets. We read Daniel, the prophet Daniel. But now we've turned into the New Testament. And so uh, the whole point of this is that we want to... Be a church that doesn't just talk about the Bible on Sundays. We want to be a church that uh, encourages people to engage with Scripture year-round, all day, but or every day, all day if you want to. But we also want to be uh, a church that equips you to be able to do that. And so that's what we've been doing over the course of this year. Uh, there are little green booklets sprinkled around the church. You can find one. It has the reading plan in it that we're using. We welcome you encourage you to jump in and join us. But this morning... We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. Particularly we're going to start in verse 18. And what we're talking about this morning is the cost of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To be a disciple? To have not just professed some sort of faith in Christ, but to, give, to have given your life to following Him? I have a friend who uh, does triathlons. His name is Jordan. I don't I don't do triathlons primarily because I'm not really interested in swimming. It's not that I'm not capable of swimming. It's that open water swimming, for some reason, is particularly terrifying to me. And doing that for distances of a mile or two miles sounds absolutely horrifying. You get into a swimming pool. There's a big, bold, black line on the bottom you put your head down and you focus on the black line and you know for certain that it will lead you directly to the wall that's at the end where if you need a break you can grab on. You can see all the way to the bottom so you're certain that there aren't any like water creatures <laughs> bent on your destruction also swimming beneath you. And so I'm just I'm totally not interested in it. I probably wouldn't even choose swimming as my exercise of choice that being uh, in a pool. But my friend Jordan has, t- has uh, talked to me recently a little bit about what's required in open water swimming. Typically the way it works in a triathlon is that you're standing on a beach or a shore somewhere, there's a buoy way out there that you are going to swim to, swim around, and then you know in some form or fashion you're going to work your way back to shore but because there's no big bold black line on the bottom you've got to not only swim and you know survive you've also got to orient yourself at all times to make sure that you're headed in the right direction and there is an art to this that it's not that you just put your head down and you swim for a while and then you kind of check to see where you are because invariably if that's your strategy you're going to end up way off course And then you're going to have to expend extra energy to get yourself back on to course. Instead, there's this uh, skill involved in making sure that while you're swimming and in just the normal flow of taking breaths, you're constantly, regularly taking a peek at the buoy and maintaining proper orientation. Otherwise, you get way off course and you've got to expend the energy to reorient yourself. What we're going to talk about this morning is orientation. What does it mean for someone who's put their faith in Jesus to orient themselves in the same direction as Christ at all times? Not in such a way that you plow ahead with your own life and do your own thing and every once in a while lift your eyes up a little bit to take a peek at the cross or a peek at Jesus and discover, wow, I'm way off course here. But what does it look like for a follower of Christ to continually orient themselves toward the gospel, to continually orient themselves toward Jesus. And in Luke chapter 9, there are two conversations that take place that speak directly to this. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we start in Luke 9, verse 18, if you've got a Bible, flip over to verse 51. In my Bible, it's, it's on the next page. Yours, it could be on the same spread. Both of these conversations hinge around one verse, and it's uh, a huge turning point in the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke 9, verse 51. It says this, and when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's also the author of the book of Acts. He wrote both of them specifically for one individual, a man named Theophilus. Uh, Most of us don't write handwritten things anymore we see like a blog post or an article that's too long we don't want to read it Luke did all of this work two entire books of the Bible for one individual that that person might understand the reality of who Jesus is and what that means and in writing both of them one of the ways you can understand the book of Luke or the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is in the way Luke positions Jesus In relationship to Jerusalem. Let me just walk through this for you. Uh, we, We made a little chart here. When we get to the end of the chart, you can take a picture of it or you can try to scribble it all down. But this is the way it moves in Luke and Acts. Jesus is born and then he's presented at the temple in Jerusalem. That's Luke 1 and 2. He's led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. And then that kind of culminates in this scene that takes place at the top of the temple in Jerusalem, Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 19, he arrives in Jerusalem and he's ushered in as king. He's literally gets this like almost coronation type parade as he makes his way into the city. In Luke 23, he's crucified just outside the city of Jerusalem Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles in Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 8 and everything that follows that, the gospel goes out to the nations from Jerusalem. All throughout what Luke writes about Christ and his life and about the work of the disciples and the Holy Spirit in building the church, he is continually positioning Jesus in relationship to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 9, we get a significant turning point in that. We're told that Jesus, my version, my translation says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Your translation may say something different. And so I pulled together a number of these. If you've got an NIV or an NLT, it's rendered this way. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you are a CSB, Christian Standard Bible, it says, He determined to journey toward Jerusalem. If you're a King James user, it says, He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, There are useful paraphrase versions of the Bible. The message at times, I think, is instructive to read. It's rendered like this, that Jesus gathered up His courage and steeled Himself for the journey to Jerusalem. ESV, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. A lot of adjectives there for what Jesus is about to do. And they all serve a very clear purpose. It's in helping us understand that Jesus knows exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem. And that the act of going there is an intentional, willful, voluntary, obedient act. Not just, I think I'm going to make my way to Jerusalem because it seems like the right place to go. No, Jesus sets his mind and his heart and his eyes and his course to Jerusalem because that is where he is supposed to be. Eternally predetermined, the Son of God would die on the cross in Jerusalem. He knows every bit of the pain that awaits him there. And he sets his face to go. He resolutely sets out for. He determines to head to. He steals himself for. My wife and I uh, have not had children. Uh, Many of you have. I don't personally, I never personally will know the pain that's involved in childbirth. Some of you do. Some of you uh, have experienced that two, three, four, five times, and it's amazing to me that you would ever want to do it more than once, (laughs) that you would have that experience one time, know exactly what it involves, and decide, you know what? Let's do that again. (laughs) And yet, for the joy that's on the backside of that experience, you're willing to endure the pain. For the love and the joy of parenthood, of seeing the miracle of life, of raising a child, you're willing to endure that. The author of Hebrews tells us exactly why it is that Jesus would steal himself for the journey to, why Jesus would resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We're told this, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that is eternally set before Christ through the cross is infinitely greater to Him than the potential pain of hanging on it. He's known that joy from eternity past. He experienced it in perfect fellowship in the Trinity. He stepped out of that into the world and He's walking back toward it. And so He's willingly laid aside the joy of the perfect fellowship of the Trinity in order to come to earth where he's going to absorb the wrath of God toward the sin of humanity in order to redeem humanity from their sin and display the perfect love, grace, mercy, and glory of God to all of the world. And for that, he's willing to endure the cross. For that, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And that's why all those adjectives are useful. That's why the translator of whatever version of the Bible that you are reading out of tries to get it right. Exactly what is Jesus' disposition here? So two conversations take place on either side of that statement. One right before Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem and one right after. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you'll flip back to verse 18, that's where we're going to start. This is what it says. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself?" For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of God the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's the first conversation. I just want to walk our way through three points, three kind of aspects of that. The first is that there's life's most important question. And that question is, who do you say that I am? Jesus actually begins by asking the disciples, who do the masses say that I am? And the crowds, the masses, they have lofty thoughts about who Jesus is. John the Baptist, that maybe he's, John the Baptist was a supernatural individual that even though he's already been killed, has come back and is in the form of Jesus of Nazareth now. Others think that he's Elijah, the great prophet, reincarnated, come back to call Israel into repentance, just like he did in the days of old. Others think that maybe he's some other kind of prophet, not Elijah, but a prophet like from the Old Testament who's come to tell the people when God is going to deliver them. They have lofty intellectual thoughts about Jesus. There are plenty of lofty intellectual thoughts about Jesus that abound in our day today. But the reality is that none of those lofty thoughts will get you saved. Lofty thoughts about Jesus do not have the power to forgive the eternal weight of sin. You can think that Jesus is a great teacher. You can think that he's a great example. You can think that he was a person that lived and walked and breathed and did some stuff. You can even believe that he may have been an individual who lived the life that the Bible says that he lived and died the death that the Bible said that he died. But you're not sure you can square yourself with the idea of him being resurrected and being the son of God. But he definitely was a historical individual. None of those things will save you. And so Jesus turns the question from who do the masses say that I am and looks squarely at the disciples and say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. In Matthew chapter 16, he says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the moment that all of us need to reconcile ourselves with. That in your heart, What is going to separate eternal life from eternal separation from the Lord, eternity apart from him in hell, or eternity with him in heaven, is going to be the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? That we are all going to stand in judgment before a righteous and holy God And the separator is going to be whether or not we are marked by the reality of our broken sinfulness or we are marked by the reality of Christ's ultimate holiness. You're going to have to be able to answer the question, who do you say that I am in that moment? And just as a side note, let's say the disciples are Jesus had asked the disciples, who do the masses say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And the crowds had nailed it. They say you're the Christ, the son of God. That would have meant nothing for the disciples. It doesn't matter if you sit in here this morning and your answer to the question, who do the rest of these people say that I am, is these people say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. That means nothing for your eternal salvation. It means nothing if I were to ask, who does your family say that I am? And you say, well, my family says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, that he is come and lived and died and resurrected for the forgiveness of the sins of humanity. That does not matter. Ultimately, the question is, who do you say that I am? The reason we're plowing through the entirety of the Bible over the course of this year is that every individual, our prayer in this church, would see in the unfolding of Scripture the reality that Jesus Christ is God's son sent to fully display his glory to the world through the redemption of humanity from their sin. That in coming and hearing us talk about it or in sitting down and reading the Bible for yourself, you would see that reality. That Jesus is the highest of all priests, that he is the king of kings, the fulfiller of the law, the master teacher, the eternal judge ultimately that you would see those things and understand that just believing that Jesus was a priest, thinking that he was a prophet, is not ultimately what's going to save you. More than anything else, I pray that your heart sees the reality that in the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of God was made manifest in human form in order to save humanity from their sin. And that that leads your heart to a confident, soul-stirring, eternity-changing declaration that He is the Christ. You see, the first orienting that must take place in following Jesus is one of your heart moving itself from seeing yourself as the central figure of the world to seeing God as the central figure and His Son Jesus Christ as the only Savior. That's step one. And if you've not ever reconciled yourself with that truth, that is the beginning place. The rest of this time together, the rest of what we're going to talk about is for people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But if you've not ever done that, then the first thing your heart needs is to turn itself toward the reality of Jesus as Savior. But Christ goes on. Jesus continues in this conversation. And just to be sure that his disciples don't think that because he is the Messiah, the Savior, that they're going to ride off into some sort of political or military victory and be you know, Jesus' right-hand men in the process of that, he continues on in the conversation. And he goes directly from this amazing declaration, you are the Christ, to verse 21. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. See, the second thing that Jesus points out is the necessity of Christ's suffering. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. Up to this point in any of the Gospels, uh, throughout all of... uh, what the disciples have seen and interacted with, Jesus has said nothing about what would be the foundation of his life and ministry, that being his suffering and death and resurrection. This is the very first moment of mention about an atonement. You see, we have no problem seeing that statement and looking backward on it because we know where things end for Jesus. We read that today and we say, oh yeah, absolutely. He must suffer. We know that that's the end of the story. But for the disciples, this would have been kind of like heart shattering for them. We have the advantage of looking backwards through the lens of the fullness of the crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples don't. And they just they can't quite wrap their minds around what they're hearing from Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that Peter actually says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus' response to that, that your life's most important question is, who do you say that I am? And there's a necessity to me suffering. Jesus' response to that is fascinating. Not only must this happen to him, but his followers are going to have to identify with it. Because he goes on in verse 23 and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me you see the orientation of your life if you are a follower of Jesus is that you take up your cross daily and follow him again hear that through the ears of the disciples they have no idea that Jesus is going to be crucified and yet here he is talking about his followers carrying a cross of crucifixion when a criminal of a particularly heinous nature, was sentenced to crucifixion, they were made to carry their own cross to the place of their own death. They were forced to publicly identify with what was about to happen to them. They would strap the crossbar of a cross to the back of the individual about to be crucified, and they would force them to carry that crossbar to the place where they would ultimately be crucified. And... All along the way, like we see in the account of Jesus doing that, people would line the sides of the street and they would cast insults on top of the individual carrying that cross. And as a follower of Jesus, Christ says, you must take up your cross and follow me. That first and foremost, Jesus says, orienting yourself to a life of following me means identifying with me in all ways it means that we must identify with Christ in our heart that your heart must identify with him, orient itself to the reality of the fact that he is the savior that he was sent to the earth to redeem humanity from sin, it means that you orient your mind toward him Colossians says that you set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God You orient your life toward him in action. That the way that we see Jesus lead his life, conduct his ministry, is the way that followers of Christ are to lead their lives and conduct ministry. And I want to kind of pause here and draw out at least One very specific reality about what that means. Philippians makes it very clear, chapter 2, that chief among the things that Jesus did in his life was that he willingly made himself the least of all things. That Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. You see, to orient your life and action into the pattern of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is a rejection of superiority. If you have identified yourself with Christ and placed your faith in him, then in the same way that he rejected superiority, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, the same should be true in your life. And I want to drill down really specifically. There are a lot of ways that you can do that. You can reject superiority in a moral sense. That just because I'm a Christian does not mean I'm morally superior to anybody else. In fact, it's a recognition of the fact that I need a Savior, that I am broken, that I am sinful. But to orient yourself in action, to reject superiority, I think, in a very real and powerful way in our nation today, means that you reject racial superiority. That if you are in this room and you are a white follower of Jesus. You reject racial superiority. The Bible makes it clear, beginning to end. The Bible makes it clear, beginning to end, that God's heart, his intention is for all tribes, all nations all tongues, all people. And if you operate with a sense of racial superiority, I'm telling you right now, heaven will be an awful experience for you. Because there, gathered at the throne worshiping Christ, worshiping the Lord for all of eternity are going to be members of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to sound like. But I think in God's intentionality in creating humanity so diversely that when we get resurrected bodies, diversity is still going to be on display. And we will all bow before the Lord in recognition of his glory, in recognition of his holiness, in recognition of his awesomeness. And we will joyfully do that alongside all races. If you're going to orient your life like Christ, in heart, in mind, in action, in mission, in service, then it means that your heart should not only accept the reality of racial difference, it means that your heart should actually long to see racial redemption take place, not just in this country, but around the world. It means that your heart should long to see brothers and sisters in Christ All colors, all nations, all people. It also means that the church should be very vocal in opposing anyone who thinks or acts in a way that's contrary to that. And if you've watched the things that have taken place in our nation recently, and you've not lended your voice, you've not lended... Your action to that. My question, I believe, the Lord's question, and in a very real way, every minority question ought to be what are you doing? How much more will it take? How much longer will you wait? What more do you need to see? We reject superiority in all forms. Orienting yourself behind the life of Christ also means that you orient yourself in terms of hope. You see, Jesus put that cross on his back and knew the pain and the torture of what was about to come. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you pick up your cross daily and you follow him, not toward some sort of pain and difficulty, though life might be hard. Ultimately, what you do is you pick up your cross and you orient yourself toward the hope and glory of eternity with him. Which means that my, whatever might come along the way while you carry that cross is ultimately worth it. Is ultimately a joyful opportunity to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9 through nine says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in in glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Bearing your cross, following him means that you orient your hope not to the reality of how you might be treated or looked upon in this life, but to the reality that heaven, eternity in the presence of the Lord, is infinitely greater than anything that might be experienced on the road toward it. David Garland, commentator on the Gospel of Luke, says this, The cross must be born before the crown can be worn. J.C. Ryle said it this way, Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross on the way. You orient yourself behind the life of Jesus Christ. There's a second conversation that takes place. Flip over. It starts in verse 44. The end of 43 says this, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Don't miss it, he says. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's an urgency to the moment. The son of man is about to be delivered. It has to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. And he's saying to the disciples, you either get on board and get your orientation right now, Or at a certain point, it's going to be too late. And coincidentally, that message is the exact same for followers of Jesus today. There is a sense of urgency to the gospel. There's a sense of urgency to the message of the cross. And it ought to compel us daily. Go to verse 57. This is where I want to end this morning. Jesus finishes all of this talking with the disciples by saying, Our Luke finishes all of this description of Jesus talking to the disciples by illustrating three conversations that Jesus has. And you get them in rapid succession here. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the reality of following Jesus, is that there is no turning Nothing turns you from side to side. No amount of potential material blessing, no restraints due to human relationships, no amount of human or social obligation that you're following of Jesus. Your orientation toward him overrides and supersedes all of those things. That you look at the world through Jesus-colored lenses from here on out, and you never turn. You don't look side to side. You don't veer yourself off course so far that you've got to pick your head up and then swim yourself back to get in line with the buoy. At all times, you're orienting yourself behind Jesus. You're seeing where it is that he is headed. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That is the orientation of a Christ follower's life, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. You pick up your cross daily, identify with Christ, orient your life toward him, and then you wake up the next day, pick up your cross, orient your life, and you follow him in all things. The goal isn't just to let ourselves drift way off track and then claw our way back. The goal is to constantly, continually, repeatedly orient ourselves behind Jesus as a follower of Him. We're going to spend the rest of our time together in worship. And the first song that we're going to sing is maybe a little bit different than something we would normally sing here at LCF. It is a hymn. It is an old hymn. With beautiful truth in it, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back.